you would please turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. We continue in our series on the Apostles' Creed, and this morning we take one of the most substantive sections of the Creed uh, as we talk about this Jesus in whom we believe. And so we find one of the most um, uh, one of the most clearly argued uh, passages in the New Testament epistles, perhaps outside of 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians 2, dealing with Jesus and who he is. And um, so I'd invite you to turn there, stand with me as we hear God's word read. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, our hope, our worship, our joy, our lives are wholly staked on another. Because it was upon a life I could not live and a death I did not die. On another's life and another's death, we stake our whole eternity. Help us this day. Help to unclasp our hands from all the other things that we try and grasp onto. Seat them firmly in our grasp with our conf- in your grasp with our confidence, not in how, how tight we hold on to you, but how tight you're holding us. Forgive the one who speaks his sins for their many. We wish to see Jesus and him only. Pray these things in his name. Amen. Seated. Here's one of the things that I want to keep bringing us back to as to why we would do a series in the Apostles' Creed. It was so important uh, that the framers of the Heidelberg Catechism 
made it a central fixture of Heidelberg. Now, Heidelberg was designed uh, so that every Lord's Day, all 52 Sundays of a year, a section of the Heidelberg Catechism could be used in worship. Um, I think there are a lot of lovely things about all the historic creeds and catechisms. Uh, Westminster tends to be a little bit more academic, and that's fine. That's what the uh, assembly was trying to do, was put together a systematic theology in a confessional form, but then also a catechesis form with the larger and the shorter catechism. Heidelberg, on the other hand, was put together more to be used as part of the worshiping life of the church. And so that's why it was divided into uh, 52 Lord's Day segments. A part of that is the Apostles' Creed. Now, remember that we've been saying, I said it two weeks ago, Jimmy said it last week, that um, this idea of belief is not cognitive assent. It's not like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. This is actually leaning into something. It is, it is saying that I'm orienting everything around this because this is what, is what holds all of life together. And if you'll remember that pyramid that, we, that I illustrated a couple weeks ago, um, you have kind of three layers to it. The bottom of the pyramid is kind of casual feelings about things. Middle of the pyramid, confessional. Uh, and this is where uh, smart people, Jesus-loving people, Bible-knowing uh, and exegeting people uh, have perhaps come to interpretive differences on the Bible. Uh, this doesn't mean that these positions are not uh, strongly held and fiercely defended, that there is deference to one another in certain areas where we say, you know, there's a variety of practices and our convictions may not match someone else's convictions, but it's not a reason to break fellowship. Now, the top of the pyramid, the creedal part of the pyramid, is, is the part where we say, if there's not agreement here, it's not an agree to disagree. It's a fundamental, we will never have unity because we're no longer talking about the God of the Bible as he has revealed himself. Now, in our, in our um, section of the creed this morning, we're going to take on this part. It says, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell, as some translations say it. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. That's the part we're going to take today. Now, I took this whole part in one chunk because as our text this morning deals with it, a lot of the epistles look at Jesus' life in the sum and total of his creation, of the redemption that he's accomplished on the cross, and his resurrection. So I want to look at how all these things hold together. And if you were following along your program with that first Heidelberg Catechism question about how am I anointed, uh, or how is Jesus uh, called the anointed one, uh, and it unpacks that idea of prophet, priest, and king, you're going to be able to really follow along pretty easily with the, uh, with the train of thought that I've got this morning. The first thing that I want to do, though, is read for you a quote uh, from J.I. Packer in his book on the Apostles' Creed. Listen to this. <clears throat> this is uh, in, perhaps in response to maybe some of the coexist uh, bumper stickers and things that you've seen. Take a listen to what he says. He says, when the creed called God maker of heaven and earth, it parted company with Hinduism and Eastern faiths generally. Now, by calling Jesus Christ God's only Son, it parts company with Judaism and Islam and stands quite alone. 
This claim for Jesus is both the touchstone of Christianity and the ingredient that makes it unique. As the whole New Testament was written to make and, and justify the claim, we should not be surprised when we find the creed stating it with fuller detail than it states anything else. This claim is central to the layout of the creed, for the long section on Jesus Christ stands between the two shorter sections on the Father and the Spirit. And it is central to the faith of the creed, for we could not know about the Trinity or salvation or resurrection and life everlasting apart from Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ in his redemption of all God's people who was the revealer of all of these truths. So how do we attack this text this morning? How do we, how do we dig into it? The first thing that I want to say um, is that we need Jesus's teaching. We need his teaching. But in order to understand why we need his teaching, we need to um, set in contrast how his teaching is typically uh, treated. And I'm not saying by you, I'm saying by those who say, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher. Okay? Like Aristotle and Plato and all the other good teachers. Um, this, is a, this is a problem for, uh, for Paul because for the apostle, for the prophets, for anyone that has believed in God and in Jesus Christ, um, belief is uh, believing in a particular set of concrete teachings. It's not just appreciation for concrete teachings. It's, it's, it's the recognition that these teachings are absolute. These teachings are, are, are the things through which we begin to understand the rest of the world. So when people say that they appreciate Jesus as a moral teacher, that's like saying Jesus is my buddy. Kind of like saying Jesus is my buddy. It's not quite like saying Jesus is my buddy. But what it's saying is that Jesus is a conversation partner among all my other conversation partners. In fact, most of the studies today in this age, we call it postmodernism because the sociologists still haven't landed yet on what they want to call it. It simply means after modernism. That's descriptive. Seems like a punt, but I'm not a sociologist and I really appreciate their work. Um, what's happening now? I listened the other day to a. Um, um, to a guy that called himself uh, a born-again uh, humanist atheist. Did I have that right? It's close enough. This is his basic philosophy on life. You can take everything you like, like a choose-your-own-adventure or a build-your-own-menu. I'd like a little bit from column A. I'd like a little bit from column B. That looks really nice in column C, that whole uh, peace like a river thing. That looks great. We'll have a little bit from column C. Uh, and then, yeah, sure, let's, uh, you know, let's go with the love your neighbor thing. That sounds good. A little bit from column D. What we have here, though, is, is not a choose-your-own-adventure or a make-your-own-religion. To say that Jesus' teachings are central is to hear the Apostle Paul, uh, what he says in verse 23. Um, all of this, and it's a poem, it may be an early hymn of the church, but it's certainly poetic in nature. All of this, he says, is, is essential if indeed, he says, you continue in faith. He's reconciled. 
us in the body of his uh, flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. How? If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you what? That you heard. Shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Um, This is explosive because what Paul has said in verses 15 through 17 is that Jesus is is the one that's holding everything together. He is not a conversation partner. He's not a, a piece of good advice among many. Jesus is the one through whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together and have their being. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, if you're thinking about what it is to understand how the world works, might it be that we would ought to listen to the one who made it? If you're wondering why things fall apart, and seem incoherent? Is it possible that instead of listening to the one who made the world and shows us how to live in it, that we have brought in other conversation partners in our life? And that's one of the things that Paul was addressing here. Um, The Bible, you see, friends, is not primarily about you and I. It's not even primarily instructions about how to live. The Bible is primarily a roadmap to Jesus. The Bible is also not simply reduced to say, okay, how can I be saved? Because when many of us look at how can I be saved, it's transactional. It's something to check off the list. It's okay, I have prayed the prayer, I have recognized that I need a Savior, and Jesus is my Savior. But what did Jesus come and announce? Repent and believe was certainly part of it, but what else did he say? For the kingdom of God is what? The kingdom of God is at hand. The Bible is not only an announcement about how must we be saved, and it is through repentance and faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone for our salvation, but it's also the declaration of the king and his kingdom. The Bible is fundamentally revealing to us that the king has come and his kingdom is being established. Therefore, there is a new order. There is no longer an order that sees us as the one that is on the throne of our own hearts, ruling our own worlds. Instead, it is Jesus saying that I am the one on the throne, and I am the one establishing my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the king. Now, why do we need, why do we need this? Um, this announcement of the hope of the reconciliation of all things. Paul outlines some of the reasons why we needed this Savior. In verse 21, he says, And you, that'd be all of us, who once were alienated, so we were separated from God, we had no access to him, we were, we were alienated from his presence. That happened in Genesis 3 when we were, uh, when we were removed, uh, by our first parents removed from the garden, removed from God's presence, uh, and we see this unfold even in the Old Testament as the presence of God would dwell behind a, a thick shroud, a holy of holies, wherein only one 
priest once a year could go into the, in the Holy of Holies and make atonement, make sacrifice uh, for the forgiveness of God's people. Now, Paul says here that you were once alienated and hostile in mind. So what does that mean? There was wrong thinking. We were, we were thinking wrongly about the world. And he also says that you were doing evil deeds. So not only was there wrong thinking, there was wrong acting. We were approaching the world all wrong. And so how in the world would we know that we were thinking and approaching the world wrong? We needed to be taught. That's why we needed one to come and show us and to teach us. But the problem is not that uh, the, the Bible is a, is a self-improvement project of learning right and wrong and learning how to behave and act. The, the issue is not this at all. The issue is that fundamentally we needed a substitute. We needed one to come in and give his life for us. Because we need right teaching, but we need more than right teaching. Jesus isn't our advice giver. He's our king and our Lord. And as such, we need more than principles, but certainly no less than the principles that Jesus taught his disciples and his followers. We need more than a prophet. We need a priest as well. Paul says in verse 22, you were once doing evil deeds and Jesus, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So let's take that uh, that section for just a moment. Um, the, in Jesus, he is both fully God and fully man, right? In verse 19, uh, it says this, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, some have asked over the years how the PCA came into being. Um, and for all of its faults, one of the things that happened is that the, the mother church began to substantively deny the virgin birth. Now, why is that important? Why is that a hill that you would draw or a line in the sand that you would draw and say, this we must have or we're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible? In fact, um, to understand this idea of enfleshment, this idea of incarnation, uh, it hinges on the virgin birth. Uh, Ray Kanata in his book on the Creed says this, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, then the story changes significantly. How? One, Mary is a liar inventing a story to cover up her promiscuity. Secondly, Jesus didn't correct her. And so he let people go on to believe this miraculous story of his birth. That makes him at least deceptive, if not an outright liar himself. It means the Old Testament texts were wrong, or at least they did not have much of anything to do with Jesus and it makes the gospel writers wrong in how they applied those texts to Jesus. And that makes you begin to wonder, if they got all that wrong, what else did they get wrong? You see, this idea of, of the one, the Savior, the Messiah, to come being born of a virgin was so crucial that it was enshrined in the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth and, and the narrative surrounding his early life. 
And it's essential for us to understand that that part is not something that we simply toss away because miracles are hard to understand. If God is the one that framed and formed heaven and earth, then God is the one that can tell cells what to do when he wants to. And Jesus can be born of both spirit and a, and a woman who has known no man. We go on and we look at this, um, this idea of Jesus being our substitute. Verse 22 again. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. One of the hymns that I grew up singing in the church is probably one that you grew up singing as well if you grew up in a tradition that sang, uh, that sang hymns. It was the old hymn, Amazing Grace. And you remember, there's one verse in Amazing Grace that confused me when I was a kid. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And I said, doesn't sound like any doesn't sound like anything else that we believe in the church. Why is it that grace would be the thing that would teach my heart to fear? Why do we sing that? It is the grace of Jesus that shows us the deep ways in which we were alienated in mind and hostile and doing evil deeds. It is the grace of Jesus that would show us a picture of what, of what graciousness looks like to ungracious people. But then there's the next line. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and what? And grace my fears relieved." How does, how does the revelation of where we've missed it and the relief of what Jesus has done, how do those things get reconciled? It gets reconciled at the cross. It gets reconciled at the cross. Jesus' voluntary suffering tells you how much he loves you and that he's made a way of salvation for you. When he suffered under Pontius Pilate, he did so for you. When he was crucified, dead and buried, he was done so for you. Charles Spurgeon says this in uh, his devotional morning and evening. He says it this way, My hope lives not because I am a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, he is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel or know, but in what Christ is and what he has done and in what he is now doing for me. On the lion of justice, the fair maid of hope rides like a queen. It wasn't just a learn more, do better, and try harder. No, no, no. You needed more than a good teacher. You needed a substitute. And don't miss the part of the fullness of God that dwelled in him. It was, it was 
no less than God himself taking up residence in our flesh, taking on for him a reasonable body and and bringing his life to this earth. It was that God in whom the fullness of God dwelled who went to the cross for sinners such as us and bore the wrath of God because you are loved by God. But all of this is good, but it's still not enough, you see. It's still not enough. Because not only do we need our our thinking uh, changed by the one who formed and created and shaped the world and knows how the world works. Which, by the way, just going back to that for just a second. To say that we as Christians should now uh, give our attention to God's law, not so that we can earn the favor of God, not so that we can merit the favor of God, but so that we can understand the wisdom of God. To say that we should now give attention to God's law, that we shouldn't give attention to God's law because that would be legalism, You're not using the word legalism right. If God is the one that shaped the world, formed the world, and has revealed how we ought to live in the world, don't you think it would be the most loving thing that God could do for us to show us where we ought to be heading by his grace? That he's conforming us more and more into the image of the son whom he loves And that he's making us more and not less human as we die to ourselves and follow Jesus. To say that it's legalistic is to miss the heart of the Father. To say that the law is just this crushing duty that we have now as our our rite of passage to follow as Christians misses the heart of the Father because he loves you. He has shown you how to live in the world and we go and we deviate away from that as one pastor said at our own peril. You deviate from the operator's instructions at your own peril. Try flying an airplane having never flown an airplane before. Or try flying an airplane apart from how it's supposed to be flown. You do so at your own risk and perhaps your own peril. See, we needed more than just teaching. We needed more than just an example. We needed a substitute. But listen, the good news of Jesus, the good news that Paul talked about in verse 23, if you still continue in this good news, this gospel of which I have become a minister, it is not good news if it was just Jesus dying on a cross. It is only good news if Jesus was raised from the dead. So let's go there. If you look at verse 18, Paul says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, 
This is Paul using language here that would remind us that Jesus is not dead any longer. There's resurrection. In fact, if you go over to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, you see a whole chapter, a very lengthy chapter, given over to the reality of the resurrection. I'll go and address one thing from there in just a minute. In the creed that we say, we say that Jesus uh, was crucified dead and was buried and descended into hell. So let's, I, I need to address one confusing thing first, and then we'll, we'll address the, the, the not confusing thing. Um, so let's talk about this line, he descended into hell. That is a common English translation, and it has given people fits trying to figure out exactly what it is that we're saying when we say that. Now, um, the earliest versions of the creed um, didn't translate it that way. The earliest versions of the creed actually translated it uh, some way different. But in order to understand that, we need to understand Greek for a minute. I'm going to, I'm sorry. Every now and again, we have to bring out the Greek thing. Um, two Greek words talking about death or um, the, pla- the, th- the, the place that we go after we die. One is Hades. One is Gehenna. Hades simply means you died. You go to the place of the dead. Gehenna is a place of punishment. The creed never talked about Jesus going to Gehenna. Nowhere in the Bible in fact, doesn't talk about Jesus going to Gehenna. And yes, we can talk about Peter in in his epistle at some point, but I don't think that's what Peter's talking about there either. So there's there's really only three ways that we can understand what they meant there um, when they said that, uh, that Jesus descended into hell. I'll give you the three options. And I'll tell you where they're different. Option one was that Jesus experienced hell on our behalf. Now, I'll let you know that this is the position that John Calvin takes. This is the position that the Heidelberg Catechism takes. Here's my issue with that. If, if it meant to say that Jesus, under the, under the, uh, the unrighteous um, judgment of the high priest and Pilate, the lash of the soldiers, and the humiliation of the cross, then he descended into hell is in the wrong place grammatically in the creed. And as much as it gives me palpitations to disagree with Calvin, I'm going to disagree with Calvin. There are a few other things he and I disagree on too, but that's another sermon. Option two to understand this is that he actually went to hell. Here's the problem though. This this creed is incredibly well proof texted except on that point. And I don't think that's what the early church taught. And if you look at the earliest formations of the creed around 200 AD, that's not what they were saying. What they were saying was this option, option three, was that Jesus um, actually died. That he didn't just swoon. He didn't faint. They didn't hide his body. He didn't like have a costume change or a stunt double. That he actually died. 
And this is actually what the Westminster Larger Catechism affirms in question 50 about the nature of Jesus' death. Um, listen to this argument that, that, um, that one theologian makes about it. He says this. He says, Christ in his death experienced the same things believers in this present age experience when they die. His body remained on earth and was buried as ours will be. But his spirit or soul passed immediately into the presence of God in heaven, just as ours will be. Then on the, on the first Easter morning, God's, Christ's spirit was reunited with his body and he was raised from the dead, wait for it, just as Christians who have died will, when Christ returns, be reunited to their bodies and raised in their perfect resurrection bodies to new life. If we honestly say that Jesus went before us, passing through death into life, why would he take a different route that we're not going on? There is no purgatory. There is no soul sleep. There is believers who die, whose souls go to be with the Lord until that day when the, when the Lord Jesus returns in his glory and then souls and bodies are reunited and it is the day of final resurrection. This, I think, is what the creed teaches. When he descended to the dead, he really died. He died so that you and I would never die. But that, so we would live. So he is the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. And he is reconciled in his body of flesh, verse 22, in order to present you. Why does all this matter? Why does the resurrection matter? Listen. Four things. Quoting J.I. Packer here. Had Jesus not risen but stayed dead, the bottom would drop out of Christianity for four things would then be true. First, to quote Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. We could stop there, but I won't. Secondly, there is then no hope of our rising either. We must expect to stay dead too. Third, if Jesus Christ is not risen, then he is not reigning and will not return. And every single item in the creed after he suffered and was buried would have to be struck. Fourth. Christianity cannot be what the first Christians thought it was. Fellowship with a living Lord who is identical with the Jesus of the Gospels. Listen, friends, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, the Jesus of the Gospels can still be your hero, but he cannot be your, your savior if he did not rise. You can say he's a moral teacher. You can say he was a great example. But if Jesus is still in the grave, that's all he is. He is only that. He is not your savior. 
the beloved, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the creed, the reason that all of this exists. It's not because Jesus was our example and not because Jesus was merely or just our substitute, but because Jesus has raised and he said, I will raise all of my people as well. So what do we do with all of that? What do we do with all of that? We deal with him this way. The thing that the creed says, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our what? Lord. Our Lord follows straight from this. If Jesus is God the Son, our co-creator, and is also Christ, the anointed Savior King, now risen from death and reigning, sitting, as the creed puts it, on the right hand of God the Father Almighty in a place of authority and power, then he has the right to rule us, and we have no right to resist his claim. He has the right to rule us, and we have no right to resist his claim. So what does it look like to believe into that? What it looks like is for you and I to continue, as Paul said, in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Friends, who are the conversation partners that have been brought into your life that have been given way too much influence and say over what you believe about the world, yourself, and where it's all going? How much influence is your family's approval, your kids doing well, everything working out, all of the things being under your control, life not being unpredictable and chaotic? How much of that is speaking to you and giving you more say over your world than what God has revealed about himself and his word? How have we made Jesus just a conversation partner among many rather than the one through whom we understand the world? We don't take our understanding of the world and bring it to Jesus and say, all right, validate it. We hear Jesus. We hear him speak to us. And then we understand the world through him. And there is no other way. How do you need to come today and renew uh, your allegiance to the one true king? Do you believe that he wants you? I believe that he wants you. Do you know how I know that? Because he died for you. And much more than that, he's been raised for you. And he'll raise you too. We don't need to play with other less kings, pauper kings, and paper kingdoms. We need the true king, the one whose kingdom shall have no end.